So we're going to shift gears a little bit here um, because I think we're going to start talking about this really interesting position that existed uh, in Cyprus at this time uh, to facilitate sort of communication between the Christian and Muslim um, communities, and that is the role of the dragoman. Uh, I remember first coming across this this very famous Cypriot dragoman named Haji Yorgakis uh, Cornesios, who my typical tourist pamphlet that I would have as a, as a kid in Cyprus simply said that, you know, he was a, an interpreter. But I think we know that this is um, uh, more than just an interpreter. In fact, I think you call him particularly enlightening, and this is a quote from one of your papers, particularly enlightening for understanding how a non-Muslim could rise to a position of prominence, end quote. So what do we know about him? Just to start off, what do we know about this really interesting uh, historical figure biographically? Uh, he is one of the best documented instances of a single individual during the Ottoman period of Cypriot history. I, I actually don't think we know more about any other individual than about Hagiogakis. And this is because uh, he had reached such a position of, of um, prominence and therefore left a lot of historical records uh, behind him, uh, showing the, the degree and extent of his um, activities. His case stands out because he is the only non-Muslim in the Ottoman history of Cyprus, throughout the Ottoman history of Cyprus, who, A, was able to extend his authority over the Muslims, which is quite significant. I mean, non-Muslims are considered inferior and subject populations in an Islamic empire. Therefore, it would be a contradiction for an inferior subject to have authority over the ruling confessional group, that is the Muslims. Uh, and the second interesting thing, detail rather, uh, about Haji Yorgakis is that he is the only Cypriot who was decapitated, executed in front of the sublime port in Istanbul. No other Cypriot had, uh, had that kind of uh, fate. And of course, the symbolic act of uh, decapitating someone uh, at the sublime port as uh, a means of uh, making him an example uh, to be avoided uh, indicates the severity of what he was being accused of. So his activities were quite wide-ranging. Uh, yes, he is known as a dragoman, an interpreter, but if we uh, only look at that particular title, I, I think that we will actually lose, uh, completely fail to understand the vastness of his uh, economic activities. And he uh, would be an excellent example of what uh, historical literature describes as portfolio capitalists. That is someone with a wide range of 
investments and activities in uh, various uh, aspects of the economy, who, uh, in the case of Cyprus, managed to acquire a uh, such a degree of, of, of power that uh, can even be uh, monopolistic. He, ab- he was able to uh, monopolize uh, e- economic, uh, social and political power uh, to the detriment of the island at large. And this is most probably the, uh, the most important re- reason for having found the uh, fate uh, of being decapitated in front of the sublime gate. Yeah, you you actually write that he, uh, quote, manipulated the market of a staple food, creating the very kinds of problems that such mechanisms were meant to prevent, death, famine, economic collapse. And this this culminated in, in, in riots in 1802 for both the Greek and Turkish communities. Um, one of the many times both Greek and Turkish communities uh, uh, rioted together, and to protest their economic situations. So, what what exactly does that mean? I mean, what what sort of crimes was um, was he guilty of? And um, in a similar vein, I might have to remind you about the second question. These moments of insurrections within these Greek and Turkish communities. Uh, how often did they cross these ethnic boundaries? I mean, how often were they unified in their in their responses to increased taxation, famine, disease, that sort of stuff? Well, this this question, uh, thank you for this question, because it, it gives me the opportunity to bring in another element, another crucial element here in, in explaining what is happening during the period and how was it possible for someone like Hagiorgakis to emerge. Uh, and this is the age of revolutions. The Age of Revolutions is a historical period, uh, is a global historical process, again, uh, starting sometime in the 1760s or 50s even, all the way to the uh, 1870s or 1840s, again, depending on the periodization. And it is a period that is characterized by revolutions not only in the form of the French Revolution or the American Revolution or the Industrial Revolution, but other forms of instability, prolonged instability, tension and turbulence. Uh, And increasingly historians are looking at the local manifestations of these larger processes. So Hagiolagis is a product of this period. You mentioned earlier the uh, joint revolts of Muslims and Christians. And I would say that in actual fact, the only Eastern instance of uh, a revolt that we know of, uh, of revolts that, that we know of and we have enough historical evidence for, to say that uh, it was a, that it was a joint intercommunal revolt. The first one is 1764. The second one is 1804, uh, and the third one is 1833. And it is not by chance that these three revolts fall within the periodization of the age of revolutions. But it is not just these three revolts and. We have to 
distinguish between a revolt and a revolution. Let me be very clear. A revolution is something that overturns the existing order, programmatically or not. It is something that, for example, leads to a new independent state that radically transforms the economy or society. Um, in the case of revolts, revolts usually end up being a renegotiation of conditions uh, and the perpetuation of the existing order, the existing authority and sovereignty. So in the case of Cyprus, we don't have that during this period. And it's very interesting that we don't. And, and in a way, it is an exception um, that is worth discussing. Perhaps we can go into that um, later in our discussion to return to your uh, question. What was it that united Christians and Muslims against Haji Urvakis? The Ottoman economy had particular characteristics, a particular character, which first and foremost ensured the provisioning of urban centers. This was a high priority for the Ottomans. The Ottomans were very clear uh, about what, again, historians call moral economy. That is, an economy that is guided by certain moral principles. And these moral principles mean that there should be enough access to food, there should be some uh, basic um, level of uh, subsistence that people can survive by. And to a large extent, uh, Haji Urgagis was able to provide the Ottoman state with a degree of stability and security. He was a reliable official at a time when Muslim officials were increasingly unreliable uh, and whenever they weren't, he would step in and fulfill their obligations, for example, dispatching the taxes that had been collected when, uh, for one reason or another, a Muslim official failed to do that, Hajiorgakis would step in and, and uh, fulfill this task. So he presented himself and he made himself indispensable in the day-to-day -day running of the affairs of the province of Cyprus. This explains why he was such uh, a powerful and long-lasting figure in uh, the uh, administration and politics of the island. As he was concentrating more and more power into his hands, and as he was eliminating any kind of um, opposition or uh, balancing forces within society itself, this would eventually lead to uh, 
this would eventually be detrimental to himself. And the example that you mentioned uh, before, uh, when he basically concentrated in 1802, he concentrated uh, the cereals, uh, all, all the cereals of Cyprus, uh, using his official functions. Uh, he uh, then exported them to Spain, uh, where uh, in the context of the um, of uh, the blockade that the uh, English had enforced in, in Spain, uh, this meant that these cereals would fetch a very high price as highly um, commodities in high demand. Uh, and he was able to do that with the mediation of Maltese merchants. So we see the extent of his commercial networks reaching all the uh, way to the other end of the Mediterranean and having sources of information that would tell him where his investments should be directed. Uh, he uh, collected the whole of the cereals of the island. He um, managed to uh, rip high profits out of this enterprise, but the result in Cyprus was famine. And this entailed the collapse of the moral economy and the sustainability of society on the island. So from a bird's eye view, unfortunately, we don't have one single document that gives us a specific and clear reason why he was executed. But it was these kinds of activities which proved to be detrimental to local taxpayers uh, that led to his downfall. How does someone like Haji Yorgakis rise to that position in the first place? Uh, are they are they handpicked at a young age? Is it is it from a a family of dragomans that it just passes down from from son to son? How does this position fulfilled? There is no one single uh, path towards that that position. Uh, social privilege, of course, uh, is one element that we can uh, assume as, as being a necessary con condition. I mean, someone like that would need to be literate, first and foremost. Uh, they would need to have a social circle and uh, a network of political alliances that would support them in their career. Uh, Hagiorgakis himself was the son of a clothes merchant, a calico merchant from the village of Keritutera uh, in um, western Cyprus, uh, in, uh, in the mountains, mountains of Paphos, uh, near Polis Chrysokou, for those familiar with the geography of Cyprus. Um, and as a reasonably affluent uh, merchant, we can assume that he was able to educate his son in uh, Greek and in Ottoman. Uh, we also know that uh, at an early age, 
uh, Hagiorgagis was employed as the private uh, interpreter of a Muslim notable uh, in Cyprus. Uh, and in that context, he was uh, accused of overtaxing um, various uh, villages. Um, we then uh, know that uh, he was married to the niece of the archbishop. So we can see how mingling in uh, high social circles uh, is again a prerequisite. Uh, and uh, we also know that he uh, had access to uh, power networks in Istanbul itself, uh, that he was close to at least some of the Fanariot families, that is, the, the powerful Christian Orthodox uh, families living in the uh, Fanari, Fener uh, region of Istanbul, uh, which were imperial dragomans, imperial interpreters, and uh, or administered the highly valuable provinces of um, uh, Romania and Wallachia. Uh, so he had access to very powerful social circles in Istanbul. He had very strong patrons there. Uh, he engaged in various social struggles. Uh, and indeed, one hypothesis for his for the reason for his demise is that uh, in the context of um, the, the shifting of balance of power in Istanbul with the, uh, after uh, the um, dethroning of Selim III, uh, who we can assume that he was one, he was a patron of Haji Yorgakis, uh, when a new sultan came to power, uh, Haji Orgagis was no longer in favor by uh, powerful political circles. Is is conversion a prerequisite to to hold that role, uh, or did you know? Because when I when I see, uh, like for example, his his portrait, and and if anyone listening, please do Google it. It's a it's a pretty famous portrait of uh, Haji Orgagis. He looks thoroughly Ottoman. Uh, one could assume that he might even be um, might have converted as well. Was that a prerequisite for the period and for that position? Not at all. Not at all. It's it's exactly this is a very good example of what I said before about how the Ottomans were flexible and pragmatic enough to accommodate for local and regional differences in administering their very very diverse provinces. Okay. Uh, conversion was certainly not a prerequisite, but having a cultural outlook, and this relates to the point that you're making about his portrait, having a cultural outlook and aesthetic choices which reflect those of the dominant uh, religious and social group in the Ottoman Empire uh, is certainly something um, that is at play here. And that is why one may look uh, at Haji Orgakis and not knowing anything about him, uh, how they may think or consider that they are actually a Muslim, 
um, this is why someone may may reach that conclusion. What happened to his property after his execution, and presumably the the debts that he had incurred in uh, you know his his machinations, for lack of a better word, um, who ended up having to pay for all this uh, all of his economic uh, endeavors, for lack of, if we can say that. Um, well, this was a, a highly controversial issue. Uh, as soon as he was executed, the standard procedure for confiscating the um, the property of a of a, of an out of favor uh, official was initiated, and as was usually the case uh, in these instances, the value of the properties that uh, were found and evaluated was very was highly below expectations, was very, very low. So other means um, had to be employed in order to uh, acquire the assets of, of the dragoman. Uh, and during, uh, after the, what we didn't say before is that after the 1804 revolt, uh, Haji Orgakis fled, escaped to Istanbul and stayed there until 1808 when he was executed. And um, while in Istanbul, he accumulated a high amount of uh, debts uh, from Armenian, uh, mainly Armenian financiers. Uh, and he was able to uh, to accrue these debts uh, by stating that these uh, are these uh, loans are for official business, acting on behalf of the people of Cyprus, both Muslims and non-Muslims. That was essentially the security that he offered to his um, borrowers. Uh, and when he was executed, um, these uh, lenders uh, demanded uh, what was due to them according to, to these uh, bonds. Uh, and the amount, this amount of money was being asked by uh, Cypriots themselves. Uh, and it was a very uh, high amount of money, 1.5 million kurush. Uh, that was the Ottoman currency, and to give you uh, an idea of this, of the scale of this amount, uh, the whole property of Hagiorgakis was evaluated at half a million kurush, and of course, this mm. was an undervalued uh, amount of money. Uh, and all these, again, this is not his whole property or all or, of or his assets. These are just loans that he had accrued over that period of time for which eventually Cypriots were responsible. Uh, it became a long drawn and controversial uh, affair. Eventually, the Cypriots were excused of these loans and they were written off. But until then, uh, it was a rather uh, traumatic and difficult chapter in, in Cypriot history. And it wouldn't be too much longer before um, another seismic event happens in, in uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, which is the Greek uprising in 1821. 
how would this affect uh, the people of Cyprus? Um, you know, what comes to mind is some of some really famous uh, or infamous executions in this period. Um, how else did, did this affect Cyprus in this time? 1821 is a very interesting and again uh, misunderstood uh, example uh, or question in Cypriot history. Um, first of all, we have this infamous um, case of execution of various notables for conspiring against the Ottoman state. Uh, Greek sources uh, inflate the numbers of the ex of those executed uh, to, uh, I think, uh, to several hundreds, uh, whereas Ottoman sources indicate a much, much lower figure of uh, around 70, if I'm not mistaken, of those who were proscribed uh, to be executed, some of which uh, escaped and went either to Greece or to Egypt. Um, of course, this is a very significant event because those executed were uh, the, uh, at the top of the social hierarchies. They were merchants, they were traders, uh, and they were highly influential people in the local economy. So the execution of this group uh, certainly had uh, an important impact at a local level, much more so because it entailed the transfer of uh, power and wealth from the hands of the people executed to uh, other Muslims who had uh, taken over this wealth and power. Uh, it also, of course, inaugurated a period of terror for the Christians of the island, which essentially meant, uh, and, and, this, and this was a, uh, a preventive, so to speak, uh, strike on behalf of the local Ottoman authorities, um, which uh, ensured that uh, Christians uh, would, would not dare um, engage in any kind of revolutionary activity on the island. And indeed, uh, this is something that is often uh, being uh, is not being adequately discussed, uh, there is no revolutionary activity in Cyprus apart from the uh, preparations for which, on account of which the executions took place. But after that, uh, there is no uprising in Cyprus during the Greek uh, revolution, just some uh, minor events of the, the Greek revolutionary uh, navy engaging in some uh, raiding activity, but that's just about it. So uh, yeah. another interesting element we need to, we would like we would be good to consider here is that the quintessential uh, event of the Ottoman age of revolutions, that is the Greek revolution. Uh, actually is not 
strongly reflected in Cyprus. There is no revolutionary activity in Cyprus after 1821. We should, of course, acknowledge and point out that uh, quite a few Cypriots went to revolutionary Greece to fight. But this is a different story. We're talking about revolutionary activity in Cyprus itself. Now, there is a reshuffling of the church. Strictly speaking, you do not have a weakening of the church uh, in terms of the uh, jurisdiction uh, or authority that it had. Um, But there were limits to uh, what the uh, Ottoman governor, the infamous Kuchuk Mehmet, had demanded. For example, he demanded the demolition of Kikos Monastery, uh, which was the single biggest economic um, establishment in Cyprus at the time, in the 1832-33 property census, the single biggest property holder of the island is the Gikos Monastery. And uh, the governor wanted to demolish the monastery and confiscate all its property. You can imagine the scale of a redistribution of wealth that this would entail. Uh, And Ottoman documents indicate that permission was not given for such uh, an act uh, on behalf of Istanbul. Uh, So he was not able to fulfill... And if we can say that there was one primary motivation for Kuchuk Mehmed was this redistribution of wealth. And in this instance of the Kikos Monastery, he did not achieve that. So... Uh, Yes, the church would now have to operate under uh, a more restrictive framework and under the fear of uh, Muslim reprisals and tensions between Muslims and Christians. But this does not uh, necessitate a weakening of its uh, administrative position. And indeed, uh, the, the, the role of the church in the years and decades to come uh, is, is quite pronounced. Uh, now, what is interesting about 1821 and the redistribution of wealth and power that took place during this period is the emergence of new social groups which questioned the authority of the church and had an alternative political vision that uh, was uh, much more uh, clearly attached to Greek nationalism uh, and questioned the traditional authority of the church. This was a group of uh, a new uh, social group of, of merchants Uh, who in the decades after 1821 were able to consolidate their social, economic and political position and demanded and acquired a higher say in 
and political affairs. So again, this is another example of internal tensions uh, within the community and the social uh, cleavages that existed within a confessional group. Do, do we have any, any evidence of tensions that are manifested in this period amongst Greek and uh, our Christian and uh, Muslim communities? I, I mean, you know, we've been talking about the hierarchical structures and what ended up happening to, to some uh, people in authority. Uh, but does this manifest itself on the ground? The first instance, uh, we do. Uh, the short answer is we do. Uh, the first instance where we have um, what we would call today as um, uh, as discourses of uh, religious tensions, uh, confessionally inspired violence, uh, let's say, uh, the first instance where we have, and I want to emphasize this, for the whole of the Ottoman period of Cyprus, the first instance where we have Muslims targeting Christians en masse is in 1802 and the affair of the famine that Hagiorgakis caused. Uh, and this is not, this is something that not only outraged Muslims, but it had also outraged the Archbishop, who, again, let me remind you, was the uh, uncle of his wife. Um, so it is this, so is, it is the intensification of social and economic processes and the creation of new social groups with a new cultural and intellectual outlook, which challenged the established order of things. What was the established order of things? The submission of the non-Muslims to the authority of Islam, the acknowledgement of the superiority of Islam by non-Muslims. All these issues are starting to the the overturning of the established order and questioning the established order was something that started in that it was first manifested in historical sources in 1802. And from then on, gradually, we have more and more instances of interconfessional tension and conflict, uh, which culminates, and for me this is the beginning, uh, the, the early 19th century is the beginning of the history of the Cyprus problem and uh, ethno-religious um, conflict in Cyprus. This is what leads to the conflict of the 20th century. We cannot understand the conflict of the 20th century if we don't grasp the social and economic foundations and the historical context that took place in the 19th century. All of this is incredibly fascinating. I mean, we can, we could talk, <laughs> we could talk about this uh, endlessly, but um, uh, Antonis, I, I also want to honor your time and 
your peninsular island, um, Cyprus and the Mediterranean, Ottoman Age of Revolutions, uh, when exactly is that going to be released uh, for those uh, who are interested? We are at the final stages of application right now. We're doing, we're finalizing the proofs, uh, and this is going to take place. This is going to finish probably this week, which means it goes off to the printers. Uh, so, in all probability, by the end of the month, uh, it will be out and um, and circulating. And it, does this mean um, the beginning or possibly the end of a sabbatical or um, what, what's next on the agenda? <laughs> a sabbatical, uh, I'm not so sure, uh, but um, there's, there's quite a few things on the agenda. Uh, one of them is uh, finalizing another book project uh, on the first Turkish history of the Greek Revolution. Uh, which was uh, published in 1944, uh, which is uh, quite a long way after the foundation of the Turkish Republic. Uh, and this is uh, a, a book that will um, translate and publish this particular work, but also uh, discuss the importance of um, this particular book situated in its intellectual uh, context of the interwar uh, and war years, Second World War years, and show a very different uh, understanding of the Greek Revolution uh, to the one that um, people in Turkey may have today. Uh, and also uh, showing how historical interpretations of the Greek Revolution uh, in Turkey have not always been the same, but they have uh, changed and shifted over time. So that's the that's the next project. And then uh, once that is done, uh, my what I have in mind is an environmental history of um, of Cyprus, where I will be able to situate, uh, to put questions of environmental history at center stage uh, and see what this can tell us about the past, present, but most importantly, the future of Cyprus. Very interesting. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, I actually meant to ask you, um, apart from Greek and English, are you fluent in Turkish? Yes, yes. And uh, does does that uh, also mean you are uh, fluent in Ottoman? Uh, some of the sources that you that you're reading, uh, presumably, would be quite different from the modern Turkish that we that we would speak in here today. Indeed, yes. Well, the, Ottoman Turkish is of course a, a dead language; uh, it's no longer spoken uh, today. But um, uh, most of the sources, actually, that I've used are uh, in uh, in Ottoman, and this is, I think, um, the the novelty um, of that the, the new knowledge that this documentation uh, can bring. The Ottoman history of Cyprus has been written predominantly on the basis of uh, Greek or European sources, uh, even by Ottomanistic historians. And it's very, very important to 
bring in the Ottoman perspective, not to just show a different point of view, because different points of view are not necessarily equal or valuable, but for what these sources can tell us beyond the intentions of their authors. And this is why Ottoman documentation is so important in my view. And it fills in a lot of the gaps that we have from the history of Cyprus, but most importantly, it confirms uh, to the IOTA uh, things that we already know from other sources. So we know that some of the previous knowledge is valid uh, and we can fill in a lot of the gaps uh, with the with the Ottoman documentation. Uh, again, thank you so much, Antonis, for uh, being a guest on the show. Well, I mean, it's been it's been a real pleasure to be uh, on the show, and really, uh, I want to thank you uh, as well for giving me the opportunity to to have this very fascinating discussion uh, and and uh, discuss these issues with you and and share my thoughts with your audience. Uh, and again, take care. Have a great evening. You too. You too. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.